0: Hi, I'm Tom Power, and this is Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. Hi, and welcome to the show. Coming to you from my living room in downtown Toronto. Uh, uh, still inside, and I hope you are too. Hope you're staying safe. Hope everything is good. Um, I got some nice notes, I have to say, over the past couple of weeks about our Bela fleck uh episode some nice comments and on, on the old instagram some nice comments on reddit can i say i got some nice comments on the banjo hangout which is where i spent my uh formative nerd years at two in the morning in newfoundland going like hmm, what, what is this rb3 mean oh do i use finger pig oh what kind of finger picks does jd Crow use um i, I appreciate that the <laughs> i appreciate that the uh the Banjo Hangout is on board. And, and more importantly, I think that Baylor brought new people, maybe yourself included, to this podcast. So if that's the case, uh, welcome to the show. Um, and I hope you enjoy the back episodes, which are all available in our feed. Today is our interview with Allison Brown. Allison Brown is uh, a legendary banjo player. I remember when I first started playing the banjo, I sat down with Neil Rosenberg, who was my banjo teacher, who uh, gets so many mentions on this podcast that I should probably give him a cut. So I sat down in Neil's basement. I was just starting to get into the banjo. And I think like all young banjo players, they start with like, oh yeah, I really like Earl Scruggs. And then they go like, oh, I really like Bela Fleck because he plays like weird, wacky stuff on the banjo. Oh, cool. And he plays like an electric banjo. And then Neil was like, oh yeah, you like Bela, hey, that's cool. Here's an Alison Brown record. And it blew my mind, the stuff she was doing. I mean, I didn't know you could play that way on this instrument and then I I got this Telluride like Telluride Bluegrass Festival anniversary DVD that I got the the record store in St. John's to order in and it was um, Allison Brown Joe Craven was playing like kazoo and congas John Doyle was playing guitar and they just really killed it they were really incredible but here's the thing I feel like when you talk about great banjo players or when there's like a list published of great groundbreaking banjo players this is just my opinion but I, I don't often see Allison Brown's name mentioned. Frankly, the names I do see mentioned perpetually, and I'm not going to say who they are, are fellas, are guys. And I think that there's there's meaning in that. And I think that's a shame. And um, I, was, I was pleased to talk to Alison a little bit about that. But more than anything, I was pleased to talk to Alison as what she is. A groundbreaking musician, someone who really stretched what you can do with the banjo and made beautiful music while showing the capabilities of the instrument. And not only that, she changed the way the business is done through Compass Records, providing a life and a career for musicians who might otherwise not have anything. And she also chose this path, kind of against all odds. Her parents didn't really support the idea of her playing the banjo. She went to Harvard. She was going to be an investment banker. I mean, everything was going to happen. She was going to be living in a penthouse and stuff like that. But the banjo, and, and more importantly, music, was what was driving her heart, and she followed her heart. I, that's not inspiring. I don't know what is. So I sat down with Allison Brown at her studio at Compass Records in Nashville. It's the same studio that Aeroplane, like the John Hartford record, like one of the greatest records of all time in any genre, was made. Uh, and she gave me cookies. And she gave me LaCroix, which we would call soda water in Canada, but seltzer, I'll call it that, sure. Uh, and I sat down to talk to the legendary Allison Brown. Take a listen. It's nice to, nice to hang. I've been a big fan of yours for a long time because I remember coming, I'll be honest with you, I remember going to Neil Rosenberg's house and sitting in his basement and telling him I like Bela heard this guy bailiff you know bailiff and he was like oh yeah bailiff you like that guy yeah. i got someone you like too and he gave me one of your records it was the one it was like a yellow cover mm-hmm. and it had a cat playing banjo
1: yeah just like that sticker on the wall over there there's a banjo cat yep it's what a, was that
0: what was that record
1: i think that record was called replay and it was like re-records of different tunes that we'd done with the quartet
0: yeah i can't believe you know that melody yeah yeah
1: yeah red balloon
0: Great tune. Thank you. I love that song very, very much.
1: Oh, awesome. Thank you very much.
0: So I'm just here to, I'm really just talking about, I kind of want to just kind of talk about you a little bit. So you're, are you, where are you from? California?
1: Right. Southern California, La what? Jolla, near San Diego.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Normal upbringing?
1: Uh, well, fairly. Um, my family actually moved from S- Stanford, Connecticut to Southern California in the mid seventies. So I was about 12 when we moved. And, um, yeah, my mom and dad are both lawyers. My sister's a lawyer. Your, sister, your
0: sister's still around?
1: Yeah, my mom and dad are too. They practice together.
0: Wow. wow. No, Brown, any Brown
1: and Brown. Um, musical aptitude, but nothing, you know, avocation. It's avocational rather than a vocation.
0: So, like, that keeps on coming up, an avocation. Cause I'm, uh, yeah,
1: yeah, that's kind of the word because my parents were always like, banjo's cool as an avocation, as something to talk about at cocktail parties when you're a doctor.
0: Right, that, that was what they hoped. <laughs> so, but it's social music. Did you guys play music around the house?
1: No, not at all. I mean, my dad played Joe Pass records.
0: So you're you're a bit of an aberration.
1: Yeah, totally an aberration, and one could almost say a pariah, but not quite.
0: No. Relatives? No. Grand? My grandparent played on the Grand Ole Opry. You know? No. Like.
1: None of that kind of stuff. So
0: when? So what happens? You you decide to learn the guitar at one point.
1: Right. My parents were taking folk guitar lessons um, because they were listening to Joan Baez and Judy Collins and Peter, Paul, and Mary. I'm really dating myself. But this this was was like the great folk scare, you know. 68,
0: 67? It was
1: more like early 70s. And so they wanted to play, you know, the Cruel Wars, Raging, and all those tunes. And so they showed me my first chords. And it happened that their guitar teacher was a banjo player. And he lent me a copy of um, the Foggy Mountain banjo record by Earl Scruggs. Mm -hmm. My dad labeled it. He made a cassette tape of it labeled it Hillbilly Music, and I really loved it. And they said, well, maybe if you practice guitar hard, you can take up the banjo. And that's really how I started.
0: I feel like the two don't have as much to do with one another as people think they do.
1: The guitar and the banjo? Yeah. I don't know. For me, they did, because the picking thing, even though the strings are different, It's still this idea of using your thumb index and middle fingers and, you know, planting for me my pinky, you know, on a guitar or banjo. So they were related, and when I first started messing with the banjo, I got the idea that, you know, if I just imagine that the first string is just a whole step lower, I can kind of find some chords.
0: So you decide to buy a banjo you decided to get a banjo after hearing Foggy Mountain banjo
1: so I just dis- my parents decided we could rent a banjo my parents like really backed into this whole <laughs> thing <laughs> so we rented a banjo and it was like you know whatever it was five dollars a month or something like that and we eventually bought it it was a hundred dollars altogether what was it it was a Mayfair banjo it was hor- it was one of those awful banjos do you still have it no, uh, my parents thought it would be great to give it to the San Diego Bluegrass Society so they could raffle it off, so they did some number of years ago.
0: Oh, I thought it was going to be like a glass case No, or I like it <laughs> really wasn't
1: worthy of that. But it got me started.
0: Right, and then what was the... So how long did you play that banjo for?
1: I played that banjo probably for a couple of years. It was really limited, but I was f- incredibly fortunate because in San Diego, I went to the San Diego Bluegrass Club when we first moved out there, and that was this, you know... Collection of San Diegans interested in bluegrass music meeting at a pizza palace. And if you talk to enough people who play bluegrass music growing up in California, the pizza palace thing will be a theme.
0: Yeah, I think I've heard that with the Nickel Creek folks, too. Yeah. There's a pizza.
1: Pizza palaces. And I think that goes back to the Shaky's Pizza Palace and the Four-String Banjo. There's some affinity between pizzas and Four-String Banjos. What? Yeah, it's just maybe like kind of like the mascot of the chain or something, like to have these Dixieland-like banjo players in those pizza palaces. So somehow that evolved into bluegrass music was welcome, too.
0: So these were jams?
1: So they were jams, and there was a stage set up, and so there'd be like people up there, you know, taking their turns playing, and then, you know, number 46, your pizza's ready, you know, over the loudspeaker, that kind of thing, and picking in the parking lot.
0: Were you good right away?
1: I was... um, good at guitar right away but banjo was much more of a struggle because as you know like getting used to having those picks on your fingers is it's really awkward yeah. it's really awkward for me and so it took me a couple of years to feel like I could kind of do anything but then when I went to the bluegrass club and saw Stuart Duncan playing with his kid band which is called the Pendleton Pickers um you know that was inspiring and then even better his dad who was a retired marine kind of forced Stuart to play with me Why? and they, Uh, I think they must have felt sorry for me. I don't know. Maybe they just (laughs) thought it was maybe kind of a worthy cause. And they had an extra banjo that was an Aida banjo that was way better than the Mayfair I had. So for a long time, I played their Aida banjo.
0: Did you have any idea that it was rare at the time for a woman to be playing the banjo?
1: Um. No, I didn't really become aware of that until I started to play enough to be looking around and seeing that there weren't a lot of other women doing it. There was the
0: woman in the Stoneman family, right? Right, right. Ronnie, Stone Ronnie Stoneman. Stone.
1: Although I would say that she was probably an entertainer first yeah. and maybe a banjo player second. Yeah. But in terms of like serious practitioners of the banjo, there was um Lauren Sepe who played with a band called Lost Highway that was a big, like, really popular regional band and um yeah there just really weren't a lot of others but you know it was southern california and so it was a much more open approach to everything like even the repertoire of bluegrass music was much more open than if i'd been growing up in southern appalachia
0: right and
1: so i think maybe i was aware of it but it maybe wasn't so much of a restriction as it might have been if I'd been growing up somewhere else.
0: So so you started doing gigs with Stuart mm-hmm. around this time? I, I have that record you guys made together.
1: Oh, me. pre-sequel, you're the one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I say, you can't escape your past. It's
0: a funny record because I feel like Because half of it's original music Mm -hmm. and half of it's old tunes, like standards. Right. And all the original music have, like, weird titles, you know, like... Yeah. Mashed Potato Batman or something (laughs) like that. It is pretty much like that, yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, right, right, right. Possum Gravy on Grandma's Beard.
0: I guess Stuff
1: track like one. That. I think. Yeah. Oh gosh, you're right. I can't believe you know that. Yeah. Thank you. I guess. Thank you. I guess. Yeah. A Bionic fine Marshmallow and mm-hmm. yeah, I mean we were like literally like 15, 16 years old sitting around thinking of song titles, and we were really inspired by the Tony Trishka banjo land record. <laughs> He had a tune on that record called Smashing the Atoms, so that was kind of like, okay, well, if, if Tony can name tune a tune that, then we can think of something at least as weird.
0: So this is 15 or 16, so you had you already won the banjo contest by this point?
1: Uh, Yeah, well, that was when I
0: was 15, and... Why did you, so you're in Cal. why did you win the Canadian National Banjo Championship? That's
1: an excellent question, and really the truth is, because I, I can't believe this is the truth, but I really thought it would look good on a Harvard... Um, college application. <laughs> and there was no American national banjo championship. Hold
0: on. <laughs> I hold know. On.
1: I know that's really. is that true? It's true. Take
0: me through this process. so you 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 knew you wanted to go to Harvard mm-hmm. and you thought, you know what'll get me in there? Winning a banjo championship.
1: Well, I thought like winning a national banjo championship would look good on the application. And so where'd you go? Um, where did oh, where did I go in Canada? So in Durham, Ontario, there was the national. Canadian National Five-String Banjo Championship, and it was all different categories. And yeah, and I won the five-string category. What did you play? I played CJ's Breakdown, which is the theme song of the Wayne Rice Bluegrass Special radio show, which is the longest standing bluegrass radio show anywhere in the country now on KSON Radio in San Diego. He always opened his show with that. It's a great tune, Carl I know, Jackson. I don't know
0: the tune. I must, I must take a listen to it.
1: Yeah, you should. It's, it's very melodic kind of intro, and it's a great tune.
0: So you must have known at this point that you had an aptitude for this instrument.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say so.
0: Yeah, like you were, but there can't have been many other kids like you who liked bluegrass.
1: Well, not at my high school, but there was Stewart, and that was incredibly fortunate.
0: Well, I just had when I was just talking to Ricky. You know, he was t- talking to me. Ricky Skaggs. He was talking to me about being this sort of child prodigy. And in Kentucky and his friends were all into the Beatles and were all into the stones and stuff like that. And then he meets Keith Whitley and all of a sudden he goes like, Oh, there's another person here like me. And is that kind of what happened with Stewart?
1: That's incredibly the same kind of thing. Cause I mean, I went to a high school where people literally were surfers and surfer chicks. That was the culture. Cause it's a beach community. And there I was like wearing Western shirts and big belt buckles to school because in California, um, the Western apparel and bluegrass music, at least back then, kind of went together. And yeah, I had pictures of Alan Mundy and Tony Trishka in my math binder and stuff like that.
0: So even then it was progressive bluegrass. Like, Mm -hmm. Did you like Earl Scruggs?
1: Yeah. I mean, Earl was the jumping off point for sure. Yeah. But the guys who were pushing the envelope, they really spoke to me, too. And when that David Grisman, the first David Grisman quintet record, the Pink record, the Pink record came out, like that music was just amazing to me.
0: That's with Tony's on there.
1: Tony and Daryl and Todd Phillips.
0: So you, it, was, it was a bit, you mean you must have felt a bit isolated?
1: Mm, I don't know. Being
0: into bluegrass in this in this school.
1: Well, I mean, I yeah, I mean, it's I guess I was a bit of an anomaly, but it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. But it was not like if, like, I've played in um, the high school in Boone, North Carolina. I don't know if you've ever done nope. that. But um, played banjo at that high school, did a show, like midday show, and like half the kids got up and started clogging. I'm like, what's going on here? And the teacher said, well, they have clogging, you know, teams at our school. And so for them, that reaction to to the banjo was like a completely natural, organic, you know, kind of what they came up with. And clearly, I, no one was clogging at La Jolla High School.
0: <laughs> it is kind of how I feel down here, to be honest. Like, I remember standing in... Michelle Concession's kitchen after Molly played the Opry, Molly Tuttle played the Opry and talking to Molly and Tristan, Tristan Scroggins. Mm-hmm. And I had this theory. Of, I talked to him a little bit about this, this, the work I had done in school about Thely and classical music. Mm-hmm. And he was not only did he not make fun of me, <laughs> but he understood what I was talking about mm-hmm. and then added something, you know. There is something about kind of finding your own group, finding your own kind of people.
1: Well, I completely agree. You know, it's like there's a Jonathan Livingston Seagull quote about, you know, members of the same family not always being born underneath the same roof. And I've always felt that way about like the banjo and bluegrass music um, because it's not what my family is about, but it's this other family that I've found. And it's a beautiful thing.
0: Were your parents worried?
1: No, they thought it was a really good thing because it was going to look great on my Harvard application.
0: These were ambitious, are ambitious, kind of driven, eye on the prize kind of people.
1: Um, well, you know, I think that they're just typical parents in the sense of wanting what's best for their kids. And certainly, you know, like, especially back then, and you have to remember how much things have changed. But in the late 70s, the idea of being a banjo player was like way more radical than it would be right now. I mean, because back then, what instrumentalists coming out of this music were, like, really making a good living at it? Right. Like, David Grissman was on the cusp of, like, maybe breaking yeah, out, He had but... played
0: The Tonight Show. Yeah. With, but, but with Stefan Grappelli. Yeah,
1: but Bela Fleck, I mean, had yet to come along, and so there really wasn't much of a precedent for it. You know, it was even before Ricky Skaggs had his kind of crossover success. So, you know, it was... That, it makes more sense now for someone to pursue something like this, I think, than it did for me to say that's what I wanted to do back then.
0: Did you have, did you want to do that? Did you?
1: No, I was um, pretty sure that I should be a doctor and talk about playing banjo at cocktail parties.
0: But it wasn't like, um, oh, I, I secretly, deeply harbor this love of wanting to be a professional musician, I, you know, uh, but instead... I have to become a doctor. I have to be have No, not
1: really. To... I'd say that I just didn't have the imagination to see the path then, and I think it would have taken a lot more imagination then than it would take now.
0: So you ended up going to Harvard mm-hmm. studying
1: studying history and literature.
0: Focus is that when you focused on bluegrass?
1: Well, that's when I figured out a way to write my thesis about bluegrass music. <laughs>
0: So when you went to Harvard, there was a bit of a bluegrass scene, right?
1: Right. Well, Boston's still a great hotbed for folk music. And back then in the mid-'80s, it was even more so. So when I got back there, there was the Boston Bluegrass Union, which is still going, and the Boston area Friends of Bluegrass, which was another bluegrass club. And the first night on campus, the Knoxville Grass were doing a show at Payne Hall, which I'll never forget because I'd only ever read about them in the pages of Bluegrass Unlimited magazine. I mean that was really before bands could come afford to come west, mm-hmm. so like maybe we'd see one of the national bands a year out in California, and there they were like walking distance to my dorm. So sounds kind of silly, but it was huge for me. I mean I really felt like I'd landed in the right place.
0: And were you playing?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It turned out that across the hall from you there was a guy from West Virginia whose name's Will Carter, and I don't know if you've run across Will. He uh, was one of the founders of the Clifftop Festival. But he was a bluegrass guitar player, so we'd sit around and jam, and so it was great.
0: And were you playing straight bluegrass at this point? Or were, you starting, were you starting to get a bit progressive?
1: Well, you know, I was always playing nutty stuff with Stuart, so it was some combination of straight bluegrass plus the nutty stuff.
0: And what, what's the, the Northern Lights? Mm-hmm. What, what were the Northern Lights?
1: The Northern Lights was a Boston-area band. I love that you smiled
0: when I brought them up, by the way.
1: Well, because uh, Taylor Armerding was, I think, really kind of the driving force behind that band, and they were dormant but I found out about them through Joe Val because I kept saying you know to Joe like who could I play with you know what kind of band and he suggested I reach out to Taylor which I did and we kind of got the band going again and it was this great opportunity for me Taylor's a great singer like high tenor voice Um, Bob Bill Bob Emery was playing bass in the band then and Bill Henry was playing guitar and it was a quartet and it was just super fun we'd play like you know whatever steak and shake kind of pubs and stuff and we made a record for Ravona Records in the early eighties. Any good? Uh <laughs> it's nostalgic, I suppose.
0: Tell her where to go and what to do to Wash away the blood from her face and from her face. But still, still just something to talk about a cocktail party, something to do in your spare time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I really thought about it that way.
0: Nothing, even at this point, nothing that ever said, oh, maybe the music industry's for me.
1: I honestly, Tom, I think I was too afraid because, like, the idea of thinking about going from Boston to Nashville. Which I'd only been to Nashville for about 24 hours when Stuart and I played on the Grand Old Opry one summer. and
0: Hold on, back up. Right. You and Stewart played the Grand Ole Opry.
1: We did. It was, I think, at five to midnight. <laughs> we.
0: Uh, How old were you?
1: Fifteen, and I guess he was fourteen.
0: How'd you get that gig?
1: Well, so after the Canadian National Banjo Championship, it opened many doors. <laughs> so, <laughs> as a um, Canadian,
0: I understand. You know, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, I'm I sure. It. I get it.
1: So yeah. the folks at KSON knew some folks at the Opry, and so they reached out and got us a slot. So we actually played a couple of banjo fiddle duets.
0: Hold on. Why? Why you? Because you were these young kind of phenom kids? Yeah,
1: I guess, you know, they kind of put in a plug for the hometown kids from San Diego and they found us a five-minute slot. You know, literally it was five to midnight, so.
0: What was that like, to be backstage at the Opry playing that gig?
1: It was crazy. Um, What do
0: you remember about it?
1: I remember Jimmy Martin thinking that Stuart and I were both girls and giving Stuart a big kiss.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like Jimmy Martin. It does, yeah, it doesn't does. it? It's it really does, believable. It, it actually yeah, not, really did I'm not, happen. I'm not doubting you at all about uh, that. <laughs> but it must have felt like you were you were at Mecca, like you were in the home of the music that, that you loved.
1: Kind of, although, you know, bluegrass music, as you know, is kind of the like the redheaded stepchild of country music. Yeah, especially so at the you, Opry, right? Right. So you can be backstage at the Opry and really feel like you're maybe in the Mecca of country music. Right. Um, but yeah, it was it was amazing. I mean, the stage in my memory is much bigger than it actually is.
0: So you're you're you, you're in Harvard. You're thinking, okay, well maybe I'm I'm still you know probably not going to be a professional banjo player. So I have not a whole lot of like what you're doing. History was it history in English? You said
1: history and literature. History
0: and literature. So what was the plan? Was there a plan?
1: Uh yeah, well the plan was originally medical school, and then I bailed out. Uh, about halfway through college of that plan. And then it was like, okay, JD MBA program would be good. So you get a law degree and a business degree in four years. So um, at the end of, you know, my senior year, I applied to JD MBA programs, and ended up getting into the business school at UCLA. Um, So I thought, and I think waitlisted at the law school. So I thought, well, I'll go out there and do that. And maybe, you know, that would kind of be some kind of conduit into the music industry or the entertainment industry Okay so
0: you were thinking about
1: Yeah, not as a player, but you know maybe on the business side of things. Right. What's
0: what's Harvard like?
1: Harvard's great for the right person. I mean, I I loved it cuz it's just super nerdy and there are all kinds of people there and people interested in, you know, thinking about all different kinds of things. So there was that side of it like the intellectual side was great. Like, this historic campus is just amazing to get to live in. And um, then there was the music stuff. And I had a radio show with Will Carter on WHRB radio called Living Traditions in Bluegrass. Um, Great title. Yep, every Saturday except during football season. Right. And it was right after Hillbilly at Harvard, which is this really long-running kind of Boston-y country music show, um, and which is, I think, still going. Lynn Joyner still has that show. So it's been on the air forever. So it was great. There was just like there was a place for the music, and then there was the academic side, which was fun.
0: And in the summertime, when you weren't at school, were you playing festivals? Were you doing any gigs at all? No,
1: I was mostly going home and like doing jobs that would <laughs> look good on a application for grad school.
0: Were you still in touch with Stewart?
1: Uh, somewhat. Yeah, he went to college um in Lovelland, you know, college out there, in Texas, for a while, and then I think just started touring after that.
0: Right. It's 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 fascinating this this whole thing because. I came in here maybe with a bias and I thought that I and mean, I was looking at my notes, which is really interesting for me. Like I came in with these notes of like strict parents who forbade oh. th- their artsy daughter from being the true banjo player that she is. But everything I can tell up to this point is that it wasn't really something you were even thinking about. See, so but I know people who are in like in investment banking mm-hmm. who are as passionate about about it.
1: Exactly, so do I.
0: As as I am about music as you are about the banjo.
1: Right. A- exactly and and that's a perfect conduit to how I got to be doing what I'm doing cuz after business school all the you know people in business school wanted to be investment bankers cuz oh. that was like the big Kind of Wall Street gig that everybody coveted as an MBA. Right. So I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll interview for those jobs. And I got a job with Smith Barney in their public finance division, basically structuring tax exempt bond issues. Wow. And like you just said, I mean, I worked with some people who are absolutely passionate about thinking about bond structures. Were you good at it? I was good at writing the proposals and decent at running the numbers, but I didn't wake up in the morning and get in the shower and think about like, Different interest rate structures and repayment schedules.
0: Were you? I mean, these these are the kind of jobs where you can make like a
1: ton of money. Right? Yeah, you can. You can definitely make a ton of money, and I know a lot of people who went that route and have made that ton of money and are still, you know, this many years later trying to find their passion.
0: What's inter- but what's interesting to me is that it wasn't, so you weren't you weren't giving up a life of, I mean, I don't want to disparage any occupation, but you know, you weren't giving up a life of making 30 grand a year, you know, working in a boiler room, just Ricky, mm-hmm. Ricky was talking about working in a boiler room, Right. hated working in a boiler room, wasn't paying him that much anyway, decided to go out with the country gentleman, right? Mm-hmm. Like for you, it was something if not lucrative at the moment, but something with the potential to be in- incredibly lucrative. Right so the stakes are a little higher to stop take me through the decision
1: well i think you know i'm i'm a real big believer in big decisions being made in baby steps and not really bold enough to kind of jump with both feet into the pool. So I kind of decided after a couple of years, maybe three years of doing the investment banking thing, that I would take a little time off and take some jazz guitar lessons because I'd always wanted to study what jazz led, guitar.
0: What led to that decision? What were you uh, feeling Just, in those just three kind years? of this
1: realization that we were talking about that some people wake up in the morning you know, thinking about refunding bond issues. And like when I got the job or when I was interviewing with the investment banks, they'd all be like, you know, do you wake up in the morning and want to bite the ass off a bear? And I'm like, okay, I guess I could bite the ass off a bear when I wake up in the morning. I mean, that's kind of like, you know, that's...
0: What does bite the ass off a bear mean? I
1: don't know. I think just kind of the aggression that they're looking for and the people that they hire. And I'm like, I guess I could do that if that's what I have to do. But that's not really where my heart is, you know. Um, And I just, I think that I just realized that after a few years, you know, I was never going to be one of those people who just was dying to think of, you know, some new way to f- refund tax-exempt debt, which, by the way, is the most boring side of investment banking anyway, because mm-hmm. it's...
0: Even for investment banking, it's still, I would say so, yeah.
1: because, like, I don't know how it is in Canada, but in this country, certain kinds of ent- governmental entities can issue tax-exempt bonds, which are basically purchased by, invest, you know, institutional investors. So it's dry, 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 and it's all, like, bond issues to fund sewers and waterworks and Canada it's mainly
0: maple syrup based.
1: Yeah, no, it's far better. It's sweeter.
0: I love that you were in the the boring part of investment banking.
1: Right. So that maybe made it easier because I think if I'd been on the just the regular investment banking side where you're just like doing, you know, IPOs and stuff for companies, it might have been more interesting. But basically this was the really dry, dry stuff. It's even boring to investment bankers.
0: and still playing banjo.
1: And still playing some, you know, like casual stuff with a local band. But you,
0: but you weren't putting in, like, hours a day practicing or
1: anything? No, there's no way you can, because in those kind of jobs, if your superiors get wind of you do, spending hours doing anything other than writing tax-exempt bond offerings, then then more work appears. Did so. your chops go away? Well, you know how it is with banjo. It's like you it requires a lot of maintenance, but you can get it back. So. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that they did, because I really wasn't playing that much. But then I kind of came to this realization that it was okay to allow myself just like this little hiatus.
0: So, so let's go back to that. So yeah. you're, you're sitting in your office one day and you go, you know what? I'm just going to take a little break. Do you, do you remember where you were when you, when you decided to do I don't
1: it? exactly. But, you know, the bond market had gone through some ups and downs. And, and you know, I kind of watched some senior people get laid off like right before Christmas. And I'm like, well, this really sucks to work for an organization that would do that. That's like really nefarious timing if you've got to do that anyway. You know, why well, pick right before Christmas? I'm like, I, I just really wasn't sure I wanted to stay in that business and in that culture. And Look at the
0: culture too, right? Because it can be a bit cutthroat, hey?
1: It's cutthroat. It was very male-dominated. I don't know how it is now. Maybe less so, but, I mean, that, it was definitely like a good old boys kind of industry.
0: Well, yeah, and, of course, so, you go to the much more equal uh, – World of banjo playing, right? right, right, So,
1: So, I don't know. I think it was a couple of things that kind of piled on, and then I just, and I was married at the time, and that made a big difference too. I think that if I'd been completely on my own, I would have been probably too risk adverse to trade in my paycheck for a big question mark. But I kind of had the liberty to do that. So, I just decided to do like this six month hiatus. To do what? To just take jazz guitar lessons and try to see if I could write some tunes because I really hadn't written that many tunes of my own
0: I feel like I'm missing something like up until now I have had no with respect no inclination from you that you wanted to perform for a living Mm -hmm. at all
1: Well, you know, Stuart and I made pre-sequel because you're the guy who bought it, so you know. (laughs) I think um, I bought it at a
0: used record store, by the way, so I don't know if the money even came your way. (laughs) No, I'm sure
1: it it wouldn't have no matter where you'd bought it. um, And so I just had this idea in my mind that since I'd made that record, it would be nice to make another record. And I I was kind of wondering if I could write more music or any music because the tunes, as you mentioned, the original tunes were a little goofy on that record, and they, you know, I don't feel like they really pushed me in any way compositionally. They were just kind of like bluegrassy tunes that we thought of. Mm-hmm. And so I think I just had that idea in the back of my mind. And I mentioned too that um, Northern Lights had done a record, and I'd written a couple tunes for that record. Mm-hmm. And so I still had that question in my mind if I could do that. So I still really wasn't thinking that I would become a banjo player. And honestly, if I hadn't gotten a chance to join Allison Krauss's band, I really doubt I would have been.
0: From what I understand, that was towards the end of the six months.
1: Yes. Yeah, it was.
0: So the six months, how does the how does the six-month hiatus go? Are you thinking, oh, God, I'm going to have to go back to this job?
1: Not really. I'm just thinking this is kind of fun playing, you know, taking guitar lessons and trying to write tunes. And I wanted to make a record. And so I was trying to write tunes for a record. And then I wasn't really sure. I mean, I was kind of figuring maybe I'd get a job with Levi's or some other you know, kind of more interesting kind of company in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And then it really just happened that someone who I knew at Harvard, Carrie Estrin, who was a concert promoter in Cambridge, she connected me with Alison Krauss.
0: Let's talk about that a little bit. So had Alison heard of you?
1: She had that. She must have had the other copy. Her banjo player in her band, Mike Harmon, had the other copy of (laughs) Mm Pre-Sequel. And so he'd played it for Alison at one point. Check this out, you know. So she was. she knew my name.
0: She must, You guys must have been kids. I mean, she must have been a kid, too, She right? was
1: totally a kid. She was probably 13 or 14. No. 14. She was really a kid.
0: So you were in your 20s at this point, mm-hmm. and she was just... She was in her teens. Oh, wow. Yeah. So sh- did she reach out to you?
1: So I reached out to her, and oh. I had this idea of putting together an all-female band and doing a record, because I just kept thinking, you can make records, and you don't really have to tour.
0: Right. Um, you had this idea I... of putting an all-female band together, mm-hmm. which was pretty revolutionary at its time.
1: I don't know. Maybe not so much. I mean, because you think about the good old persons, which wasn't all female, but was kind of female driven. And that band was going from the 70s in the Bay Area. Whoa, I got a
0: feeling. against your better judgment. You're going to think about me. Sure. And, and there was, are
1: probably other examples that I'm not thinking Well, about. there's Hazel and Alice, Hazel you know. Hazel and Alice, and, and, and there's the Whites. Yeah. And, um, but, but it's it's low, yeah. True. It was,
0: and it was low then. True. The that's number, true. right?
1: So she was into the idea. So I came to Nashville and we got together and we kind of, you know, brought Andrea's on and Lynn Morris and Missy Rains in. We, you know, played some together and we thought this could be kind of interesting. And while that record never happened, when Mike was leaving her band, she's like called me up to see if I could fill in on a few dates, and that's how that happened. So how was that? How was it? Yeah. Awesome.
0: Endless highway,
1: as far as I can see, the road will take me back to him night It's been so long since I've seen this smile. I'll be counting all the miles till I get
0: How do you remember that time in your life? Well, This was Union, were they called Union, union Station? Right. Union um, Station.
1: It was really a, an interesting transition because I was living on Knob Hill in San Francisco at the time. What's that? Um, it's like a really, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's one of the really nice hills above the financial district in San Francisco.
0: Sort of swished, sort of?
1: Uh, somewhat. Mm-hmm. Bougie, as my kids would say. Sure, I
0: didn't want to say it. I, didn't <laughs> I want know to say it.
1: that wasn't a word back then. Yeah, but right, right. <laughs> yeah, it would was, would be a little bit like that. And so then I like fly to Champagne and stay at Allison's parents' house because she was living with her. She was at home. She was like maybe just finishing high school. I think she would have been fourteen or fifteen. I think is about right.
0: And you're still married at this point.
1: I was at that point. So yeah. you,
0: what what a, what a culture shock that must have been for you. What it a was change. A
1: huge culture shock. I mean. Um, I mean, in every possible way, because I'd been traveling like as an investment banker, you know, flying down to Santa Barbara to do a bond refunding. And then I like was in a van with Allison Krauss and Union Station driving from Champaign, Illinois, to our first gig, which in- coincidentally was at Harvard, which is weird, isn't it? It was at Sanders Theater, the first show I played with her at Harvard.
0: So that, how did that feel in the moment?
1: Uh Amazing. Yeah, Like it was some kind of weird 360, although it wasn't a complete circle yet, but I was just kind of really aware of having left that place, you know, going to business school to be an investment banker and then coming back to it as a banjo player with in Alison Krause's band.
0: Did you have to give your company like six months and like after no, six months? No, I
1: just, I quit the job.
0: Oh, I thought it was like, okay, I'm taking six months it off. It was like a
1: month. personal hiatus, but yeah, I left investment banking.
0: Well I can't imagine how how great it must have felt at the end of these six months to know like wow now I, I I got it, I got a gig
1: yeah it was i don't not I don't really recall feeling like I'd necessarily arrived at like a destination, but just like it may be at an interesting new starting point, which actually is really more what it was in reality it was I a starting this point. sort
0: of eureka it was, did you have like a eureka moment in the van of going like, well this is it this is this did you have the moment? <laughs> where you went, I found my investment banking?
1: Uh, Maybe on some level. But, you know, I think there was a sense of it not being the complete answer for me because, I mean, the whole thing about playing music, and I love doing music full-time, but as you know, it's like you're paid for the two hours you're on stage and then the other 22 hours, you're, like, traveling, sitting around, and there's just all this Mm -hmm. Mm downtime. And, I mean, over time that just started to feel like too much downtime that could be used for other things. I I, I
0: I can't wait to get to that. Yeah. I want to get to another thing that I said I, I put off. Okay. How the hell did your parents take it when you decided to do this?
1: Well, they were less than enthusiastic as you might imagine. That's
0: very, very generous. of That you. was diplomatic. How did they it? take it? Did, did they, were they upset?
1: Well, you know, it's been so long, but I've, thought about it enough over time. I mean, I, I remember kind of the like the pregnant pause at the other end of the phone line and my mom saying, well, you know, do you really want to grow up to be a 40-year-old lady playing banjo in a pizza palace? <laughs> Which actually now <laughs> sounds kind of good, yeah. so I I'll don't take, know. That. I'll take not, that now. <laughs> um, yeah, they really weren't that keen on it.
0: That must have been hard for you.
1: It was a little bit hard for me, but, you know, they came around fairly quickly. I mean, right. it took a few years. And... In all honesty, I mean, I totally do understand it as a parent. I mean, I I can understand it better. My perspective's different because I'm the one who did that. So when my daughter says she wants to go try to be on Broadway, I'm like, yeah.
0: How old are your kids?
1: 17 and 12.
0: And does the oldest one want to be on Broadway? She
1: does. So I'm like, you got to go try. Oh, isn't that nice? Yeah, because, I mean, I kind of know how that works out. It's like, you know, you got to pedal the bike. You've got to try for that thing. But, you know. And if that doesn't work out, I mean, I really do feel like if you project the right energy into the universe, you will find the right path.
0: Yeah. It feels like that sometimes, doesn't it?
1: it I th- really think that that's true. But, you know, go back a generation. I mean, my parents were my grandparents, you know, came up during the Great Depression. So it really colors your experience and perspective a lot.
0: So what kind of gigs were you doing with Alison? Festivals? So festivals,
1: clubs, clubs, yeah, all that stuff that bluegrass bands do. Driving, driving, driving.
0: And yeah, a lot of time in a car, kind of boring. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two women in a bluegrass band, everything okay with that at festivals? No weirdness from anybody?
1: No, there, I mean, it it was a bit of an anomaly, but not that much of an anomaly because there are plenty, there were plenty of bands that had some women in them. What was unusual, I think, is that, Allison was the band leader, and when I think back, there weren't that many bands—certainly not nearly as many as there are now—that were female-led.
0: I mean, I have to ask. Like, I've spoken to you so far, and I've spoken—I spoke to Alice Gerard the other day, and I—I've sort of hunted around for like, did you guys get any pushback? Did you get any, any you know, bad stuff said to you? Any bad reviews? Any, I you mean, know, stuff based around? Any kind of any sexism? Any you know, misogyny? Mm-hmm. And it has been a little shocking how. Little, you guys have both said to me, you know? Well,
1: I think it has to do with how you ask the question. Okay. Because, you know, there were, I mean, we were accepted as doing what we were doing. And of course, Allison's so phenomenal that how can you not, you know, get around that? I mean, she's just a great singer, great player, great at picking songs, and just all around great. So you'd be crazy not to like that. I think that where the it's not misogyny, but I think where you hit the ceiling in bluegrass music, and it it may be still somewhat true today, is in the other opportunities. Like I'm really cognizant of the fact that it was a female that gave me an opportunity to do what I do. Right. It wasn't a guy. There weren't other male bands trying to hire a female banjo player. Right. And I think that that's that's the difference. It's I think there are fewer opportunities. There certainly were fewer opportunities then if she hadn't hired me to do that I think I said that a while ago I'm really not sure I'd be sitting here talking to you about playing banjo now
0: right so what was it that made you decide to leave Allison's band
1: um it was kind of a mutual decision you know I think she was interested in kind of exploring some other directions with the banjo player mm-hmm. and I made a record that was pretty I mean it wasn't Straight Ahead Bluegrass Simple Pleasures my first solo record that David Grisman produced
0: The rose, rose colored cover,
1: yes. Rose, wow, you really did your homework. Yeah, I no, I, I,
0: that. I, I legitimately am a fan you of your it. music, I appreciate legitimately it. have your records at my house.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, um, yeah, so that was like me, you know, kind of a little bit under the spell of certainly David Grisman's pink record <laughs> and like all that kind of experimental acoustic music that came out of the new acoustic music scene. And just wanting to reach beyond kind of the confines of regular bluegrass banjo. Mm -hmm. So that music, you know, there was like one or two tunes on that record that Allison felt were suitable to play in Union Station. Mm -hmm. But definitely not the rest of it. So it was just, I think it was just time.
0: Was it a hard call?
1: It was a tough call. Because I'm a huge fan of hers and I'm a huge fan of the music. And it was a great, it was It was. Incredible opportunity. I mean, to get to live that dream—it's like I often think about. Like the first time I got to drive on Highway 40 East and see the sign that said Pike County—or that's probably the g- wrong geography—but just to see the signs that referenced, you know, Earl Scruggs banjo tune titles. <laughs> be in the place that created this music that kind of drew me to the place. It was like, I know you've had a similar feeling. I'm having one. Yeah, it's really magical.
0: As we speak. Yeah. Really, I am, you know? Like, we're in the studio where the Aeroplane record, the John Hartford record. Exactly. I mean, I I sort of dressed like John Hartford at my prom.
1: Oh, see, I wish I'd known you in high school. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was, no, but I was in Newfoundland where there are only like 500,000 people, and there's three of us that are into blue you know what I mean so I wore a bowler cap and I had a cane and I tuned my banjo to E I love that so I could play Lorena yeah and I'm here I'm here where that record was made I'm having a moment of that right now
1: yeah it's crazy it's the magic of the banjo and all these other things it's like that that thing that fascinates me I think fascinates you too just why did this instrument kind of like choose us Because, you know, that's how I feel about the banjo. I feel like I chose it, but it also chose me. There's no reason why it should have been the banjo. But I just find it endlessly fascinating. Not only the instrument, but the culture it comes from and what it says about the American experience and even how it, like, brings together people from such disparate backgrounds.
0: There is something kind of mystical about it, isn't there?
1: For me, there is, for sure.
0: And I'm also very interested in, like... The, the humans that have changed the way it's played because I can you can almost kind of look at specific people I can't think of another instrument like this in the world mm-hmm. where I can look at specific people and go oh Earl Scruggs fully changed the way that instrument was played right Don Reno fully changed the way that instrument was played mm-hmm. Bill Keith fully changed the instrument the way that was played yep. you know um Bela you Tony Trishka now No Noam, Noam Pichelny, you know like mm-hmm. I can't think of another instrument where I can say maybe the mandolin maybe right where I can say this is this is a moment this is a moment where this instrument has changed you know
1: yeah that's a really interesting way to look at it
0: it's fine and, and were you were you interested in all those different styles of banjo like were you mainly were you learn I'm gonna have a moment if you're listening to this podcast right now I'm gonna nerd out for a second I promised myself I wouldn't Do nerd out too much. It's
1: time to nerd out on Banjo. Were
0: you were you playing, were you interested in single string at the time? Were you playing, were you interested in Keith's style? Because I feel like there was only you and Bela that were combining the two.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So obviously the three-finger thing came first, but Tony Trishka was a huge influence right away. Um, and, so, and melodic style too. So Bill Keith, right. Alan Mundy, John Hickman. Thank you for
0: saying John. John Hickman's my favorite banjo player. Is he? And no one talks about John Hickman.
1: Oh, do you want to talk about John Hickman? No. I'll talk about John Hickman. I don't know a whole lot about
0: John Hickman, but I have this John Hickman record.
1: Don't mean maybe. Yeah. Yeah. See, I know John because when I was about 14, Stuart Duncan and I had a gig um, at school. I guess it was at Spillikin Corners at Magic Mountain. Yeah. And I was not quite strong enough on the banjo to be the banjo player in the band, so I was playing Horrible Dobro, oh. standing next to John <laughs> Hickman for a whole summer. So I got to know John pretty well.
0: What a great banjo player, though.
1: Great banjo player, great touch. Right. Really kind of different approach with his picks.
0: Right. Wearing
1: them really pretty long on his fingers. Pretty far out. So do I. Do you see? Yeah, That's... Actually, kind of interesting.
0: I didn't know that. I didn't know that was a. what do you do you wear yours? It's kind of like an extension of your.
1: Yeah, more like the climbing shoes kind of approach. Oh, no. that's how I think about them. Mine are
0: kind of sticking right out. Yeah,
1: that's what John did. <sighs> Beautiful touch.
0: That's about all we have in common in terms of our banjo playing, Allison. Mm,
1: I don't know. Well, I haven't heard you play in a while. So. That's <laughs>
0: a, I haven't heard myself play in a really, really long
1: time. <laughs> We've got so, the tapes.
0: So after Allison. You continue on playing music, I think, for a while, right? So
1: after Allison, then it was kind of like working on music for a second record, which was Twilight Motel. And recording some of that. And then seriously, you know, my parents were like, well, we really do think you'd enjoy law school. (laughs)
0: Are we still married in here?
1: Uh, no, not anymore. Okay, so somewhere that, in here, the marriage that kind of fizzled, right. fizzled out. So you're so. sort of
0: suspended, then. you sort totally, of totally. Yeah, I was
1: living in Nashville, trying to figure out the next thing. Nearly went to law school, and literally just as I was thinking about doing that, I mean, it, almost within like the same moment, I got a call from Michelle Shocked, and so she
0: Michelle Shocked. Right.
1: Yes, she. I, when I was in Allison's band, she hired the whole band to play a track on her Arkansas Traveler record. This so is like a
0: bluegrass record, she made. I know, I don't. Yeah, know it's record.
1: kind of a string band record. It's actually a brilliant record. What she did was kind of take old tunes like Black Blackberry Blossom and Cotton Eye Joe and write lyrics to go with these old tunes. Mm-hmm. So we played on uh, Prodigal Daughter, which was her version of Cotton Eye Joe. It's it's worth checking out. Yeah, I'm sure it's on you. Spotify because cool. she's a genius songwriter and she's a genius entertainer and um, and here again like another female creating an opportunity for me right and she hired me to be her band leader on her world tour and she needed somebody who could represent help put together a band that could represent that record plus her pop records and her R&B record so and her kind of folky records so that's what I did
0: how long did you do that for a full year touring worldwide
1: World tour. It was amazing because it's like, I went from being in a band where like people would snatch up the new copy of Bluegrass Unlimited to being in this band where people like could, didn't even know Bluegrass Unlimited existed. And that was really good for me because I had to learn how to like take what I was doing out of like the Bluegrass bubble and make it translate on bigger stages. And like, and she played a lot of sheds and really big concerts, you know, she'd draw a couple thousand people and know it was all amplified and so that kind of started that struggle of like how do you make a banjo heard in a good way in that kind of setting
0: it's it's hard you know because uh i i I, in some ways i'm I'm a little resentful of the fact that i didn't really have many people to jam with when i was Mm -hmm. learning Mm -hmm. i am grateful that i had the opportunity to play banjo with a lot of different genres of music early like play rock early play with a lot of Mm -hmm. singer-songwriters because it does make you a better banjo player And I guess that's what you were experiencing there, too. You weren't just playing bluegrass. You had to become a better instrumentalist.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it it made me become, like, a broader thinking musician. And it really expanded my awareness of other other kinds of music. Because, honestly, I really was just, like, all about bluegrass. Even if it was, like, the bluegrass on the fringe, it was still bluegrass music. Like, I didn't... I'd never heard a Van Morrison record. And, for example, you know, or the band... Like, I was aware of, like... I love the way
0: you say it. Like, the band? Yeah,
1: Is this somebody? I know, exactly. And so when we first started touring with Michelle, I, I had hired Gary who who I'd met who's now, your, uh, who's now my husband your and husband. co-founder of Compass Records yeah. and so we'd sit on the bus like for hours and he, he'd have his pouch of CDs you know and go through that stuff. I didn't stuff. think you
0: were going to say CDs.
1: Yeah I know yeah. <laughs> I bet you didn't <laughs> but we just sit there and listen to all this stuff and I hadn't heard any of it so.
0: And he's like a rock guy or he came from? He
1: came from R&B Southern Soul right. some country he toured with Patty Loveless, Delbert McClinton.
0: And you were showing him Bluegrass?
1: Uh, he knew some bluegrass because he would actually played with some banjo players in Atlanta. But he was mostly showing me stuff.
0: From what I understand, this was sort of a, a fortuitous meeting because you and Gary sit down and you decide to ask one another what the good what the good life is.
1: Well, right, so there's that story. But that actually is true, you know, being in the cafe in Stockholm, Sweden. I believe it. Tell me the story. Yeah, so the story is, I mean, and it kind of riffs off what I was saying about being a musician. Is like the two hours on stage, 22 hours of, like, lots of sitting around. And mm. there's a lot of time to do other things in that day. And so we kind of agreed about that, and we're thinking about – how you could combine playing music with maybe helping other artists get their music out there, and how you could basically fashion a life in music. And it kind of gets back to, I think, something that I think is real, really is pertinent today for artists, which is, you know, being a musician, making a living in this music, It's a you have to think of it as a cottage industry, and it's kind of like, you know, your life is in the center and it's really the spokes of the wheel that help you kind of get the revenue to afford your lifestyle right and so that's really the way we were thinking about it we got the cocktail napkin out and drew the good life and it had these little bubbles of like record label touring you know have a studio which i can't believe we actually have you know family and some other things and that's really kind of where the idea to start compass was born
0: is that and did you stop playing with michelle after that is that the?
1: we spent a year with her and it was a really tumultuous year in her (laughs) Career, I mean, it started off with this big world tour in Europe, and it kind of ended with four people in a van in Australia. Right. And um, it was edifying in many, many ways, and it was definitely a year was the right amount.
0: I feel like you did an Indigo Girls run, too.
1: I've toured with them kind of on and off and played on a bunch of their records. And I'm gone.
0: But not, this is not around the same time. This is after
1: Compass. No, I probably met them around that time, but right. kind of more recently done stuff with them.
0: You know, we were talking a little bit earlier about um, opportunity, you know, the the um, the fact that, you know, you were given opportunities, again, main, mainly by women, ex- ex- exclusively by women. Was starting Compass also about correcting something in the industry that perhaps you weren't seeing enough of?
1: Well, that was our idea, and we well, really went into it with knowing so little Um, which maybe was a blessing in some ways. But yeah, we really felt like there was room in the Roots Music arena for there to be a label that was kind of artist-run. And I think that grew out of frustrations we'd had dealing with executives at the label I was signed to and other labels that just didn't seem to really get what it was to be a musician out there on the road.
0: But what didn't they get? What, What were some of their...
1: You know, really kind of how the music comes together or like what the opportunities and challenges are when you're actually out on the road, you yeah. know, getting from A to B, and how to be smarter about those kinds of things. Yeah. And then we also felt since we were out there on the road, we were in a great position to hear great artists and help get their music out there in a broader way.
0: I feel that way about uh, arts journalism too, which is a, mm-hmm. a weird world that, I mean, I'm sure similarly that you probably have moments where you can't believe you're working for a record label, mm-hmm. which was probably once the enemy, Or at least something you were a little bit cautious about? You know,
1: it was never really the enemy Mm -hmm. um, because I was signed to a label. Back when you had to have a label, I mean, back when there was still a filter, you know, there was no way to get your music to the market, right. marketplace without a label. When right. I was signed to a label, so I wouldn't say the enemy, but that doesn't mean you can't have frustrations with your
0: partners. Uh, yeah, I think, but we, we, at least we can say you probably didn't think you'd end up owning a label at any, you know, like this. It was, an, it was another side of the industry that maybe you weren't a part of when you were. Yeah, it,
1: it wasn't innovation. something I'd been thinking about since I was in college or yeah. before.
0: And I think that was, you know, with me, I, I found myself, you know, playing music for a really long time and being really interested in just kind of the stuff we're talking doing right now, like I was really interested in um, the history of bluegrass music, but also mm-hmm. in, 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 in banjo music and, and roots music. But also, sort of the I was really uh, attracted to how um, normal it all was and how human it all was. Mm-hmm. And I think when I found similarly, I found when I found myself in in arts journalism, I was realized I was I was speaking to so many people who kind of over-glamorized how glamorous the actual creative process is mm-hmm. in like a wow it must be incredible I mean you know like where does this, where does this breadth of an idea come from and right. so you feel like you're an asshole if you give the answer well it was four hours into the session and we didn't have anything you know, mm-hmm. you know I was just, just trying you know yeah. how unglamorous it can be really be you know
1: right no you it know? is interesting how the perception of people who aren't in this is like uh, yeah so much rosier. <laughs> Or maybe so much more romanticized than how it actually can be in reality.
0: But you never had any feelings of selling out, like I know. I'm not, not you know. I've I definitely had moments where my friends are all you know touring full time, and I'm touring a little bit, and I'm also you know have a have a day job and you know in music and, and something. I I love my radio show more than I can ever say. Mm-hmm. But you know, there there are moments where I'm a little jealous of my friends who were just on the road all the time. Did you ever have any of that when you started this label?
1: Well, you know, the label's grown to be like a much bigger thing you know now than obviously than it was when we started I mean we literally started on the kitchen table so you know we started with our four releases and that seemed like so much work and mm-hmm. so complicated and now we probably have a thousand releases across four different imprints and all that so uh, it's a much bigger you know like enterprise than it was then and but back then we didn't have kids and we were doing a lot more touring too but to speak to what you just said I, mean, I don't feel at all like it's selling out I feel like it's Um, helping to build the community Mm. of this music and it's helping to try to play it forward in a healthy way. Mm. And I totally feel that way about what you do with the radio show. It's like building a platform for other people Mm -hmm. is, I really think it's a noble pursuit. And I don't think that it has to be one or the other. It's like, for me, there are weeks go by where I'm just like sitting at my desk, looking at spreadsheets and like doing that part of it. And it's not always my favorite thing to do but then there's other weeks where i get to go off and play so you know play banjo Mm -hmm. and so i mean in some way i feel like the two things inform each other if all i did was play banjo i maybe i would just not appreciate those moments as much as i do because i know that i'm gonna have to be sitting at my desk doing a spreadsheet pretty soon you Mm know
0: Mm -hmm. does it make the spreadsheets a bit more you know i i I do get a little excited about being able to access that part of your life too, yeah, totally. Because I can tell you have I that. I like
1: thinking about that kind of stuff. I, can I tell just you don't do. like thinking about it all the time. Right, and it's thank God there are no bond issues involved. <laughs> that stuff was pretty dry, but yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. Looking at the numbers is interesting. Mm-hmm. Trying to figure out a way to make this company sustainable in a way that we can support, you know, great bluegrass artists who you know, maybe would live below the obscurity line as defined by her major record company and help these folks make a living. I mean, that's pretty
0: exhilarating. Mm -hmm. I mean, and and don't get me wrong, I mean... These these fleeting moments that you have, you know, are the fleeting moments that you have. But I'm I'm unbelievably. I mean, if it wasn't for the radio show, I wouldn't be here talking to you right now either. You know, like it's it's given me. I love I love every second of my. And if it day. wasn't
1: for the label, you probably wouldn't be here talking to me either. It's kind of like the the two mm-hmm. facets of it that kind of, for me, make the whole piece. And I mean, I think that that's when I was just an investment banker, the music part was missing. And when I was just traipsing around with you know playing music, the other side of things was missing and so now it's kind of more complete which is not to say it's not always satisfying because it's nice when you have that balance and it's really hard to strike because you can't do both things every day so there are just days that you come home and you're just like i haven't played banjo in a couple of days and that's a bummer
0: right you know Uh, what's inspiring you musically these days are you uh, because you are always someone who um Compositionally, I've always been really, really interested in because oh, you know I, you. I hear moment, you know, I hear elements of like Celtic music in there. What, what you would, what we would call Celtic music here, um, uh, you know, I hear some jazz, some country music. Like I hear what we unfortunately call world music. Like I hear mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of that in there too. Um, Well, right off the bat, I feel like you haven't had a lot of stylistic limitations put on the banjo, but I feel like you've always been able to do it in a way that doesn't rub it in my face in a very, (laughs) look what the banjo can do kind of way. It always Mm -hmm. just felt like a pretty pure expression of what you were trying to do.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. you know what I mean by that? I think I do. I mean, sometimes I feel like for better or for worse, my approach is just like informed by my femaleness. And I know that like when I play with all men, which is most of the time, like, in a band like New Grange is a great example. I don't know if you're familiar with that band. Um, it was a special project kind of thing that Mike Marshall and Daryl Langer put together with Tim O'Brien, Todd Phillips and Phil Auburg, great mm-hmm. pianist and I got to play banjo. So these are guys that are just like, I, I can't see the limits in what they're able to do in terms of improvisation and music. And um, three of the members of that band could read music really well. So like they could exchange musical ideas really, really fast. But, you know, when they look at how to put an arrangement together, it's like or, you know, even just in a performance setting, they're like guys, it seems to me, are always driven to assert themselves in the music and like claim their sonic real, uh, real estate in a tune. And I've, I feel like with my thing, I'm always just trying to look at it as a tapestry, that each individual member is contributing to the tapestry, but it's not really about anyone besting the other guy right. or gal.
0: In Canada, we say, pa-, oh, you might say it down here because of the Preds, but we say passing the puck.
1: Passing the puck. Yeah, <laughs> I get I mean, it. <laughs> that's kind of
0: how you get a goal, right? Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, that's how I think about it. So I don't know. And I, sometimes I feel like as a result of that, maybe I my playing hasn't been maybe it's more subdued or maybe it's more i don't know less flashy or whatever but it's kind of the way i'm drawn to present it right and i think i tend to write tunes where the banjo is one of the voices but it's not necessarily the attention grabbing voice and when i go to record it's never about okay so like you guys just back me up and i'm going to play a bunch of stuff right and i i don't know i've often wondered if that's like how much that's a part of Just being female.
0: Um, So, well, on that, I mean, do you find now that you're playing a little bit with the first ladies of bluegrass, which, if you're listening to this, is a a band made up of the first woman to have won uh, their respective IBMA award,
1: right, on their their, instrument, on
0: their respective instrument.
1: which incredibly took 26 years to happen, that there would be like a full band of women to win Instrumentalist of the Year.
0: When did you win yours? In
1: 1991. Wow. And Molly Tuttle won hers in, I think, 2017 or something like that. I mean, it's just, I mean, over a quarter of a century that it took for that to happen. But yes, that that kind of is, it's an interesting question because when we sit around to work on a tune, And I see this a lot with women, and I think it's a beautiful thing, because I think women are kind of natural consensus builders, either that or we're just socialized to be that way. And I think that's something that the world needs more of right now. But it's always like, if the song's too long, everyone's always like, cut my solo. No, cut mine. Cut mine. And I don't see guys do the same kind of thing. Right, right. It's just interesting to me. Um, I'm not saying the result's better one way or the other. It's just different. And I think... I find that in my own playing, too, that my approach, I think, is just informed by that way of thinking.
0: I, I, well, then I have to ask the big, kind of the big question. Are things getting better for women in, in bluegrass music?
1: Oh, so that's a big question. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that things are better, but I don't think that they're as good as they need to be. What do you mean? Well, I think that that for lack of a better term the grass ceiling still exists and I think is that real? T- I've
0: never heard that term before.
1: well I don't know like we like to think of the first ladies as smashing the grass ceiling oh, okay. I don't know who came up with that but and, and it's true on some level but then you think about the fact that everybody in the first ladies is a band leader and I'm like well why are we all band leaders and for some of us for some of the women you know it kind of makes sense for them to be front people and others not so much but I think that it's still difficult for women to find opportunities to play in male dominated bands and so i think as a result women are just like heck with that i'm just going to build my own right and but now you can kind of do that you couldn't have done that back in the 1940s when you had to have like either your brother or your husband in the band or you would be you know or it wasn't appropriate for you to be out on the road so that's all changed but i think there's still you know, until there's really parity in terms of opportunities, women are still going to have a bit of the short end of the stick.
0: What, what do you think like the bluegrass community, maybe even not necessarily something like IBM, a, but just the bluegrass community could do as, as a whole to help?
1: Well, so this is what I think is so exciting. I mean, I think we've finally gotten to this place, this moment in time where there are enough women like peppered throughout the bluegrass ecosystem um, that we just have to support each other. We have to create opportunities for each other. You know, Back when I was growing up, there just weren't enough women to do that. But like I said, it was two women that created opportunities for me to be the banjo player sitting here that I am. Mm -hmm. And we just have to really take it upon ourselves to create those opportunities for each other wherever we can.
0: Are you seeing moments that make you hopeful?
1: Um, Well, absolutely. I mean, I see a lot more bands with female members in them. But that's the thing that's the most exciting to me it's just that, you know, we've got the role models now in terms of, like, if you want to grow up to be a great flatbed guitar player, well, Molly Tuttle did it, so you can, too. And that kind of stuff, I believe it makes a real difference, be, the visualization of what you can become. Like, without that, it's, you're really kind of whacking your way through the weeds. But if you can see what you're shooting for and say, you know, Missy Raines did it, so I can do it, too, that makes a big difference.
0: Does it feel like you're you're living the good life in the cocktail napkin?
1: Absolutely. I'm super lucky. I'm not refunding bond issues. I get to play banjo. I get to help get other people get their music out there, and I'm talking to you today, so that's pretty awesome.
0: And we got to eat cookies and drink seltzer water. We sure did. Allison, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. All right, there you have it, my conversation with Allison Brown at her studio in Nashville, um, John Harford's studio, where he recorded Aeroplane. An incredibly formative album to me, and I know a lot of people who are really into this music. It was a very magical moment to be there, and also kind of magical to talk to Allison. You know, especially when she talked about following her passion, you know, whether that be banjo or business, like giving it your full heart, but giving it your full heart pragmatically meant a lot to me, and you know, about finding your people, you know, I have to admit that making this podcast has been, you know, really rewarding for me and that I've started to meet people in a country very far away that um, have meant an awful lot to me. And, and I feel like I'm starting to meet people who get me and I get them sort of for the first time. So nice to hear Allison sort of confirm that, that your people your people are out there. Uh, In a couple of weeks, you're going to hear my conversation with Jesse McReynolds from Jim and Jesse and the Virginia Boys. You know, the early days of bluegrass music, who are we talking? We're talking Flat & Scruggs, we're talking Bill Monroe. Bill Monroe would hate that I ordered them that way. Uh, The Stanley Brothers, Jimmy Martin, and Jim and Jesse. Jesse McReynolds is going to tell you some stories about him and his brother Jim starting a bluegrass band, and if you think you are are like a hardcore DIY punk, the stories he's going to tell you about the early days of bluegrass and what they did will make you take the crass patch off your And, you know, and sell your German Shepherd. Those things are just going to be gone. I don't know why I'm imagining that crust punks are listening to the show exclusively, but that's where I am. Toy Heart is produced by Stephanie Coleman and me, Tom Power. Our executive producer, or EP for short, is Amy Reitenauer-Jacobs with help from the BGS team, Chris Jacobs, Justin Hiltner, and Craig Shelburne. You can discover more... BGS Stuff at the BluegrassSituation.com. That's also where you can find the Whiskey Sour Happy Hour, where the dog, Ed Helms, the head honcho of this entire Bluegrass situation, is raising money for COVID 19 relief through Folk and Roots music. I mean, that's the best way I can think to do it. You check that out at thebluegrasssituation.com. This show is mixed by Mike Laval and Stephanie Coleman, transcription by Rob McLaren. The theme music, Toy Heart by Bill Monroe, is performed by Kristen Andreasen and Chris. Critter Eldridge. You can like and subscribe and find us on the old Instagram at Toy Heart Podcast. We check that way too much. So drop us a line there. We'll see you soon for Jesse McReynolds later on.